Thank you, worship choir. Take your Bibles, turn with me again this week to 2 Kings chapter 2 in the Old Testament, or if you're using our Bibles here, page 291. We are coming to a remarkable passage of Scripture today in many ways. We find five physical miracles that God accomplishes because God is in the process of making himself known. As we began this study in the book of 2 Kings last week, I, I suggested the theme we've posted, the God you can't ignore. Because the main characters that we might think are front and center in our passages are not the main characters. We meet Elijah and Elisha, good examples today. We will study about various evil kings. But the main character in Scripture is always God. It's always what God is doing. And as we come to understand who God is, that's when we know how to live. Because our life is lived in response to who He is. This chapter describes the transition in ancient Israel of spiritual leadership from the prophet Elijah to the prophet Elisha. I know it's a little bit confusing. I'll probably say the wrong name somewhere along the way. We're going from Elijah to Elisha. Elijah, in the book of First Kings, had performed some amazing miracles, God's power, of course. He's the one that called down fire on Mount Carmel. Last week in chapter 1, he called down fire twice. How do you follow someone like that? We find out today in this passage how you follow someone like that. The coaches have a, have a term or players, uh, next man up. And it's the mentality that a team needs to have when someone is injured or someone gets ill and, and the next person has to step up. And the most obvious application that we'll see today is in our spiritual leadership roles, and by the way, if you're a parent, you are a spiritual leader. If you're a, if you're a Sunday school teacher or a mentor who cares about somebody else and where they're at spiritually, you, you are a spiritual leader. As spiritual leaders, we will all be replaced. We will, we will be replaced by, be it, be it re retirement or a move or death or whatever it may be. But here's the good news. The good news is that God's plan does not depend on a person. God's plan depends upon the power of God working through any person. And so we will see that as we see the transition of next man up in ancient Israel. 2 Kings 2, the first two verses. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, that is, together. Uh, there's like a spoiler alert here because if you, if, if you think, if you understand this chapter, the main point is that God takes Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind and he already told us, you know, there's no, there's no suspense, no buildup. 
no surprise, the author is, is making sure we know the high point before we even know the story, and we'll see there's a reason for that. Because on this momentous day, as God is making the switch from one leader to another, these two men, the mentor, Elijah, and the protege, Elisha, are taking a final walk together, but each place, each city or town they stop in, God has already revealed to some prophets what is about to happen that day, and they keep telling Elijah and Elisha what's going to happen. And so we're going to follow them in the first half of this chapter on this, on this journey. So geographically, let's take a look at ancient Israel and just kind of you'll, you'll then later on be able to recognize these, these stops along the way. So there's actually two Gilgals in the Bible. Clearly, this is the one that he's referring to here. But this, this begins, you see in verse 1, in Gilgal. And they make their way to Bethel, maybe eight miles or so walk um, uh, south. And from there, they will make their way to Jericho. Then they will cross the Jordan River. And that's where God takes Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. And then Elisha travels back alone to Jericho. So just kind of have that picture in your mind of of where we're at. So in verse 2, he says, uh, Elijah, Elijah says, stay here. It's almost like Elijah's giving Elisha a final test. Are you really committed to, to succeeding, following me as a spiritual leader. And clearly, young Elisha is committed to fill his sandals. He says, absolutely, I am coming with you. I will not leave you. Because, in fact, Elisha has been following Elijah for some years now. Uh, 1 Kings 19, the previous book, is where we find how Elisha came to be the follower, the trainee of Elijah. Younger Elisha, then, was farmer Elisha. And one day while he was plowing, Elijah approached them. We take it that Elisha was actually a little bit more of a wealthy farmer because it says that he was, he was uh, manning one of 12 teams of oxen. So there was kind of a big operation. And Elijah comes walking up to him and he takes off his coat or cloak or mantle and he puts it on Elisha. And Elisha understood immediately what that meant. He was supposed to follow, and he accepts the invitation. And right there in the field, Elisha sacrifices the two oxen, kills them, cuts up his wooden plow, makes a fire, and offers a sacrifice. And from that point, begins to follow and assist and serve with Elijah. Verse 3. The company of prophets at Bethel, that's their first stop, came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know or realize that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, but do not speak of it. Um, Evidently, Elisha just has this information too, and he's processing this, I think, with a grieving heart. He has been following Elijah for some time, and uh, I wonder if this phrase means something like, I know it, just stop talking about it, you're making it worse. Verse 4. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? And he's thinking, Seriously, you have to bring this up. God was making it very clear. 
Yes, I know it, he replied, but do not speak of it. Verse 6, then Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. He replied, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. By now, it's kind of an 8-mile and a 14-mile and a 10-mile journey, uh, whatever. It's, it's a little bit less than 30 miles, probably. It's a, it's a long walk that day. Verse 7 says that some 50 of the company of the prophets, that's evidently the, the group from, from Jericho, 50 of the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. We'll just stop there for a moment. This company of prophets at each place, um, if you think, if you read through the Old Testament history, kind of from the time of Samuel the prophet who preceded the kings, uh, from the time of Samuel and through the kingships of, uh, of Saul and David and Solomon and then uh, even into the, the kings of first kings and now Elijah and Elisha, there's, there's this long period of time in which there was these um, like schools of prophets. Uh, these are like campuses or compounds where they lived. Keeping in mind they didn't have a, even a completed Old Testament, of course, and, and God was using these prophets to speak his word to people, and it seemed like almost like it was a training kind of a, of a situation. So they are, the 50 of them follow Elijah and Elisha as they get all the way to the Jordan River, and now comes this fascinating test of faith and the first miracle of five that day. Verse 8, Elijah took the cloak, his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. With 50 prophets watching, Elijah takes off his cloak, smacks the water, it parts and dries instantly, and 50 jaws drop. We recognize that miracle if you've read the Old Testament and those prophets certainly recognized the miracle because rewind some 600 years and, and it was Moses leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and they come to the Red Sea and, and God enables Moses as he strikes the water to part the Red Sea and they walk through, the whole nation walks through on dry ground and some 40 years later then his successor Joshua is leading the people into the promised land and they're crossing the same Jordan River coming the other direction. And that's exactly what God enables Joshua to do. And he parts the water. In fact, it says it's during flood season. It says the water piled up to the north so that the whole nation could now cross this Jordan River on dry ground. And after they all pass through, God releases that water and it cascades on downstream south. And they all witness the power of God. And that's when the people of Israel then went to this Jericho and walked around it, and the walls fell down, and they began the conquering of, of Canaan. Now Elijah parts the same water. And they get to the other side, just the two of them, and the two of them have this conversation, verse 9. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise not. As they were walking along and talking together, 
suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Miracle two of the day, the final one for Elijah. It's the big one. It's the main event. This is what's happening. And uh, before we look at that particular miracle, let's look at the request in verse 9 of Elisha. What can I do for you? What, what, what's your request? He says, I'd like a double portion of, of your spirit. He seems to be referring to the power of God, the Holy Spirit, who was working through this human instrument of Elijah. He says, I'd like to have a double portion. It sounds kind of greedy um, that I want twice, but it may not mean necessarily that he wanted twice of what Elijah did because this term in the Hebrew language was used back in Deuteronomy 21.17, the double portion is what the firstborn son would receive as an inheritance. The firstborn son, under Jewish law, got double what the other siblings got. And it could be, in fact, it seems most likely to me that he's saying that he's requesting to have more than the other prophets, thus having the full amount that Elijah had. If you you called me to be the leader like you have been the leader of the prophets, I'm going to need the kind of power you have. I'm I'm like your firstborn. That's a difficult thing, Elijah said, but if you see me go, it's yours. If not, then not. And Elisha does see him go to heaven. In fact, he's probably the only one who witnesses this event on the other side of the Jordan, because remember, the other 50 are, are over on the other side. So this is like a private parting. It's chariots of fire and horses of fire that suddenly appear as these two men are walking. We assume they're very close, and, and whoosh, between them come chariots and horses of fire, and then Elijah is taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Something, someone slices between these two partners in ministry. What could it be? I think we know from Scripture, from comparing to other passages, in Psalm 68, the psalmist says, The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. Referring to the person of God, the presence of God when he appeared there, surrounded by what? Angels. The myriads, the thousands, these are, these are angel references that appeared and took Elijah <clears throat> away to heaven. There's also a, another reference very similar that we'll come across in chapter 6 of 2 Kings when Elisha and his servant are in a town where they have been surrounded by the enemy, king, the king of Aram of Syria. And um, the servant is really afraid because there are literal horses and chariots surrounding the city, enemy combatants, and the servant is afraid, and so Elisha prays to God on his behalf, and this is what he prays. Elisha prayed, open his eyes, my servant's eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha angels. 
So while that servant didn't know it, God had sent angels to protect them that day. It really makes you wonder how often that happens. Because angels are real. Uh, in the New Testament, Hebrews 1.14 says that God's angels are ministering spirits, are serving spirits sent to render aid to those who will inherit salvation. It's us. God sometimes uses angels to protect us, to do the miracles, to accomplish things. And God doesn't need angels. God can simply will anything to happen that he wants to happen. But God is glorified when he uses others. Just like God doesn't really need us either, does he? In other words, if, if, if we don't do something we could do, God goes, oh, can't get that done. No, but he uses us to make a phone call, to encourage somebody, to, to give a meal to someone, to, to send money to someone. God uses us. He, he used angels to get Elijah. That raises the question, so did Elijah die? I don't see anything about death here at all. Elijah did not die. He simply went up into heaven <clears throat> in a whirlwind. Had anything like that ever happened to a human being before? Actually, there was, it seems, one other time where someone was taken to heaven without dying. Way back in Genesis 5, it says that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Now, if you only had that verse, you might wonder, what does that really mean? But if you go back through that list in, of names in Genesis 5, it's actually describing the generations and who was the father of who. And all of them died with one notable exception. Enoch, who walked with God, was privileged, honored not to go through death. And God just took him. So Enoch and, and, and Elijah, boy, do you think that could ever happen again? Could it ever happen again? Yeah. New Testament. It could happen to some of us in this room. Now, this event called the rapture, could also happen decades and centuries from now, so sorry, then we are going to go through death. But it could be. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangels. Seems like angels are present at death and departures to heaven, right? And with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ, believers who have died in this age will rise. So it's first a resurrection. After that, we who are still alive and are left at that moment will be caught up together with them, the resurrected believers, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Yes. It seems like God has given us in the Old Testament a couple of a little samples, Enoch and Elijah, so that we would know something about how this age ends as well, that God's going to be doing this big collective taking of his people. So we learn already much about God's power that uh, just should encourage us here. What do we learn about leadership? We learn that God assigns leadership to whoever he wants, whenever he wants, and he can take somebody away anytime he wants. God picks leaders. 
God assigns leaders. He, he, he assigns you lead from here to here. Now, we're all called to be spiritual leaders. And if you care about influencing someone towards Christ, uh, you are a leader, you are an influencer, and, and we, have, we have a room filled with those. But I want to talk just for a moment about um, sometimes how God calls people into full-time uh, ministry leadership. Sometimes in Bible college and seminary, uh, my classmates and professor would discuss this concept of the call, if it were such a thing, if that's, if that's a real thing. Books have been written, and people write and disagree and discuss. It's kind of interesting. How is it that somebody ends up in a, in a full-time vocation or career of ministry? If, if you talk to, to Nate or Seth or, or Pastor Jim, or you talk to Doug and Nancy in missions, or, or Tim and Sis who were here on the stage, you know, we've all got very different stories. And it, just, it, it strikes me that God just uses like some very regular, natural kinds of, of processes. Uh, I was a middle schooler in our home church when uh, there was a, an evening service. We were uh, dedicating and praying for someone who was going on a short-term missions trip. I remember kind of where I sat on that side over there. This is back in Kansas in our church. And, and uh, I just felt something kind of emotionally. I, not that someone has to, but I just thought to myself, God-given maybe, that that sure seems like something worth doing. The next event I can kind of remember was in high school when our, 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 my youth group was, was putting on this uh, play commemorating the centennial of our church and the history. And we did this reenactment I was the pastor, I don't know. And uh, one of the church leaders came up to me afterwards and said, seriousness, you should consider doing something like that. Kind of stuck in my head. End up after high school, I, I decided to go to this Bible college where my brother and sister had both gone for a year. And I went and, and it kind of stuck and had to pick a major. And I didn't know what major to pick. And, and, and one of my sister's friends says, oh, you can sign up for the pastor thing and you can always change it. Never did. Because of that, I took an internship at the church. Priscilla and I were married by then, and, and, and at the church, that, that guy mentored me, and he had gone to the seminary in Dallas, so I went there, and then one of my classmates in Dallas in my final year uh, told me about this church in Wisconsin where his friend was an elder, and they were looking for a pastor, and here I am, just kind of a natural kind of a thing. It's, it's just God uses circumstances. He uses, uh, he uses family. He uses... Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's not a flash or a bolt of lightning. And God is calling all of us to serve and, and, and lead wherever we can. But I'm just thinking, is there someone younger than me listening and wondering what God has for you in your future? Uh, to consider it, maybe, maybe missions. We met, as I said, Tim and Sis last week. They're going through training uh, now, uh, maybe it is to serve as a pastor. Maybe, maybe some young lady is going to marry a pastor, you poor thing. <laughs> a lot of different ways that someone could serve in a vocational ministry. It, know this, it does not make you more holy. It does not make God love you more. 
In fact, when, when, when you find something in Scripture about it, it's like a warning. James 3, 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, because you will incur a stricter judgment. And so it, it, it's a warning to take it seriously. But, but if, if you, it's something that God has maybe spoken to you about, I would encourage you to talk to maybe one of us as pastors, talk to, talk to, to Doug and Nancy, and uh, if there's some way that uh, we could help, help you think about where to focus first to how to prepare, that would be a privilege. Um, but God assigns it wherever he wants, whenever he wants, whoever he wants, and he can guide it and he can stop it, and there can be starts and stops and restarts. Elisha, it's your turn. We've seen two miracles in the story so far. The river parted and dried up. Angels took Elijah to heaven. Well, hold on, it's not done yet because there's a flurry of miracles that launch Elisha's leader, uh, ministry as a spiritual leader. Verse 12, Elisha saw it. So he witnessed it. And he cried out, my father, my father. Elijah was like a father to him. My father, my father, the, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. He recognized the, the angels that had, had been protecting the nation. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them apart. Now, why would he do that? Uh, tearing of clothes was an ancient way of showing mourning or extreme grief. He had just lost his friend or mentor. Whether it's death or rapture, you're gone. His grief was mixed probably with some fear because now there stood Elisha by himself after having this partner leading him all this time. He was alone. If any of you are a licensed pilot, I'd imagine you would remember your first solo flight. It's, it's, it's when there's no one to bail you out and uh, yet fly you must. Verse 13, he picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah. Hmm. So maybe all of his clothes, but at least his cloak stayed. He picked up the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak that had fallen from him and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? He asked. And when he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over the same miracle. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching, remember they're on the other side, they said, the spirit of Elijah is, arrest, is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed down, to, they bowed to the ground before him. So as, as Elijah is gone, Elijah's cloak is there. Oh, remember the cloak? First Kings 19, 19, actually. When Elijah approached Elisha, he put the cloak or mantle on Elisha. And now, this time, Elisha officially picks it up and accepts the invitation, you can say. You, you may have heard the idiom of, of uh, taking up the mantle or passing the mantle. It's still used sometimes today, and it refers to someone who is, is taking over a leadership role from someone else. And it comes from, from this story in the Bible. So he takes the cloak, goes to the river edge, and there the 50 prophets see him. Elijah is gone. 
what's Elisha going to do? I can imagine it's a pressure-filled moment for Elisha. I mean, Elijah told me that if I see him go, then I will have what I asked for, the double portion, the power like Elijah. But now it's go time. And he smacks the water saying, where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah? God answers, and the same miracle happens. The water parts. Miracle three of the day. And the, the 50 prophets seem to recognize his leadership immediately. The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha, and they meet him, and they, they fall on the ground. And, and yet, I, I, I'm kind of wondering if they're still questioning whether this is really happening because of what they say in verse 16. Look, they said, we, your servants, have 50 able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down on the mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. Uh, are, are they having a hard time accepting this? That their leader is, is gone? Change is hard when you've had a respected leader or boss, don't send them. There's no use. We assume that Elisha had told them about the fiery angel escort and the, the, the winding, whirling staircase of air, and he'd gone to heaven. They were hoping Elijah just kind of went for a divine helicopter ride or something. Interestingly, verse 17, Elisha Let's them look. But they persisted until he was too ashamed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent 50 men who searched for three days but did not find him. When they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, didn't I tell you not to go? That's the classic, I told you so. Um, they persisted. It seems like these prophets had to learn he's really gone and we're going to trust God's word through Elisha now. And, and it almost seems like Elisha has a little bit of insecurity as well when he gives in to their request. Uh, the term means embarrassed or almost like... He, he was pressured, he was guilted into it. So finally he says, okay, just go look. Let's, let's settle this thing. We usually don't like change. Especially if we're like... 20 or over, that's some of us here. Part of Open Door's DNA through the years has seemed to always be this willingness to change. And, and through, through the years, it's like we've changed many things. If you've been here several decades, you, you know that. And uh, Service times uh, change. Uh, buildings changed. If you go way back to when we started out in a liquor store, that we bought, which was that part of the building, <laughs> or the basement we met in before that. Uh, the way we build buildings has changed. The way we raised funds for the last one, that, that, was, that was changed. And of course, this last year, everything changed, right? And, and so as a church, we, had, we changed the, uh, uh, the service times, and uh, we even changed uh, the ABF 
uh, thing as, as leadership and so forth was, was changing and who was available. And so we, we did it different. Change is uncomfortable. But is it possible that God is going to do some of his best work in us and when, when we are uncomfortably facing change? Elisha is now beginning his ministry in earnest, and everyone sees that God's hand is on Elijah, because God will not be ignored, right? So, so God makes sure of it, first with, for, the, for the 50 prophets, but then it, it goes, reaches out into different parts of the nation as well. So miracle number four of, of just this chapter, verse 19. The men of the city said to Elisha, so we assume that city is Jericho, where these prophets had been looking for three days. The men of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see. But the water is bad, and the land is unproductive. Bad water. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring that supplied the city's water and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. Wow. This is a really important miracle uh, in so many ways. All of them are, of course, but remember the Bible is given to us to reveal who God is. And what do we see about God here? God cares about stuff like pure water. God cares about the, peop- cared about the people of Jericho and their, and their water problem because God is a God of grace and God delights to, to bless. Well, now last week, chapter one, we saw something else about God. God is also a God of holy fury to those who ignore or reject him. King, evil King Ahaziah, to his dying day, refused to acknowledge God's supremacy. Uh, Rejected God's final effort to rebuke him. And he died of his injuries. And 102 of his troops died as well in his judgment by fire. And We talked last week about how we, we, we tend to either experience God's fury or God's favor. Based on whether we seek, seek God or ignore him. So now in chapter 2, the first miracle that he does regarding others, is, is, a, is a miracle of God's blessing. The water had been polluted somehow. It was, the term is unproductive. Literally, this term unproductive or whatever you have there is, the land suffers miscarriages. And it could be that the water actually was causing an unusual rate of miscarriage among the livestock and the, and the families of Jericho. Otherwise, the town was well-situated or pleasant. Otherwise, the, the real estate market was attracting people to this beautiful area in the Jordan River Valley. Location, location, location. <clears throat> Bad water. <laughs> Elijah had been there three days, according to verse 17, and he's waiting for the prophets to come back who were looking in vain for Elijah. In the meantime, he's tasted the water, if the taste was an issue, or he's at least told the story of what's been happening. Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. Now, now salt in, in Scripture uh, tends to be a, a... It symbolizes a lot of different things, but 
it includes things like purification and, and preservation. And uh, he, he tosses kind of a picture to help people remember this moment, it seems, that God gave him. He tosses the, the salt from a new bowl into the spring, and the water is instantly healed. Just like that, the real estate market rebounded. Shepherds and expectant mothers and fathers were, were rejoicing because that's what God loves to do. God does love to bless. That's in his heart. Just like you love to bless your kids. You gave them gifts at Christmas or whatever, or birthdays and other ways. God loves to do that. Now, God is one with perfect wisdom, so he doesn't always bless when or how or the way we ask. We understand that. But on this day, God healed the water and, and people were blessed. God is loving, but God is also just and holy. And if you ignore him, or if, God forbid, mock him, you'll experience his fury. Final miracle, number five in this chapter, verse 23. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. Retracing the steps, right? As he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head, they said. Go on up, you bald head. Probably meaning go up, keep going, get out of here. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled, killed 42 of the youths. And he, Elijah, went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. That's the capital. That's where the story resumes in chapter 3. This, this shocking miracle disturbs any view of God that we might have if we want to picture him as a safe, kind of a neutral person. This, this, this is the fury of God with those who mock or rebel against him. Let's clear a couple of things up. Uh, translations are a little different here. The, this, this, is, this is, I think, certainly not five or six-year-old boys who just happen to be playing tag on the street when a bald prophet walks by. <laughs> um, the term can mean any, any young male, kind of from, from those ages up through early teens. So I would imagine this is a little bit more the 11, 12, 13-year-olds. And they come out of the town. They are intentionally pursuing Elisha. This is, this is premeditated. How would they know he's bald? Uh, men of the day typically traveled with heads covered to keep their heads safe from the sun and, and dust and so forth. Someone must have told them he was bald, but they pick on this feature. Many pastors at this point would make some kind of a joke about that. I'm not going to. Someone said thank you. Okay. <laughs> Why would these young men come out and mock? the prophet that they somehow heard from somebody that he's bald. 
Bethel's an interesting city in biblical times, these biblical times. It had once been a kind of a center of godliness centuries before, but it had become a very spiritually mixed place. On one hand, we know that there were prophets. There was a compound or school of prophets there. But we know something else about the more recent history of Bethel spiritually is it had become really a dark spot and a center of pagan worship. Back to the map. King Jeroboam, 80 years before, was the king who rebelled and pulled 10 of the 12 tribes out to follow him. And uh, that formed a northern kingdom. The kingdom was divided from that point on. The southern kingdom uh, always had a king that was one of the descendants of King David. And there were some good and bad kings in the south. The northern kingdoms were all evil, actually. And part of the reason is what is what Jeroboam did when this happened. The the approximate dividing line of the divided kingdom went through, guess where? Bethel, and Bethel was on the southern outpost of the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam, as he was trying to gather his power, realized that the people were all used to going to the temple of God in Jerusalem. But that's located in the south. And so he came up with a plan, 1 Kings 12 tells us, the king Jeroboam made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem, a whole 10 more miles south. It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan, and this thing became a sin. Dan is actually on the northern edge of that. He'd be way off the map. Uh, and, And so he said, I don't want anybody leaving the country saying they've got to go someplace else to worship. I'll make my golden calves. And he then proceeded to appoint priests totally outside of God's Old Testament law. Whoever he wanted to have be priests and, and uh, he set up a whole new schedule of festivals and it became pagan idolatrous worship. Eighty years later, everything had Change. So when these, these young men come out taunting Elisha, uh, it, it's most likely, I think, that they were just parroting the uh, ungodly attitudes of their parents. Because uh, their families, this city was not fans of Elijah. So they were not fans of the successor Elisha either. They were predominantly against God. So as Elijah is jeered, Elisha is jeered, he, he curses them in the name of the Lord. Basically, it's a way of saying, let God deal with you. Let God repay you. And Elisha doesn't pick this judgment. The bears were God's idea. And it says 42 of them perished. 42 of them The phrase means there were more. Perhaps there were others who didn't join in the mocking that God spared. But God will not be mocked. There's an interesting backstory in the covenant that God established with Israel. I just selected verses from this important chapter in Leviticus. Where God had laid out in writing for the people. Do not make idols or set up an image. Calves, right? Or a sacred stone for yourselves, and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. If you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will remove wild beasts from the land. If after all this you will not listen to me, so this is the other thing, 
I will multiply your afflictions seven times over as your sins deserve. I will send wild animals against you and they will rob you of your children. You know, this, this event can shock us, offend us. We won't put the like, press the like button on this paragraph. But God will not be ignored. I've been reading... Old Testament prophets recently, Isaiah, Jeremiah, now I'm in Ezekiel. And uh, we see these two sides of the nature of God, which are actually in perfect harmony. He is, he's a God who, who longs to show grace, but he's a God of just holiness. Um, we can go ahead and argue we don't like what God did. Just wouldn't recommend testing God based on what we like or don't like of what he said. Because you see, our culture, stimulated by Satan, who is called the God of this world, has been steadily steering people to like and approve things that God specifically calls sin. And I think those things have become our modern idols. The idol of immorality whether it's images or relationships, the idols of greed. So what God calls lust, the world tries to call love. What God calls greed, we try to call success. And, and we need to be terribly careful if we begin to find ourselves liking or accepting something that in God's word is called sin. God sent Israel prophets to confront things like that. He has given us the record and his word of what the prophets said. We should be able to put two and two together. So Elisha heads on north where he will resume that ministry. So we learn much of the nature of God, but specifically about leadership again. Elisha was the next man up. The principle is that when God replaces a spiritual leader, everything about God remains. When God replaces a leader, there's there's, there's no diminished power of God at all. Israel would be fine without Elijah. We're all replaceable in God's plan. God's plan never, never depends upon us. It depends upon him. And so, so where, where, where we might think the power is in the missionary or the, the pastor or the elder or the, the, the speaker or the blogger we read or the author we love, it's not. If something's happening in your life through someone, don't, don't mistake the person for the power. Parents... And I'm speaking, I guess, now to, to parents, you have children eating your food at your table every day, okay? That's the definition. You're a, you're, a, you're a spiritual Elijah to your children as long as they're around daily. You're the Elijah. But they won't always be around. So they're going to need an Elisha in their life, or a bunch of them. And part of your job is to help them find the Elishas that they will need. Frankly, so much of what we do as a, as a church in terms of ministry programs and so forth is to develop really an army of Elishas, particularly when I think of our, our youth and children's ministry, an army of Elishas that are going to help 
be that next person, the next man up for your kids. You need to take advantage of that. Because parents will be replaced as Elijah's. I'm occasionally asked when I expect to retire. The simple answer is I'm, I'm very excited to be a part of Open Door's future for a while yet. But I'm not blind to reality. Technically, I'm old enough to be Seth and Nate's dad. Nate was born the year we were married. We were married at 12, but... Uh, <laughs> the, Nate's birthday is actually a little awkward for us to explain that year, though. So. I'll be replaced. Missionaries are replaced. I looked at our church directory, the 2021. It's going to be replaced, too. The, the missionary list... Four of those missionaries are retired of our ten that are on that list right now. How is God going to get anything done? But he's calling the, the young couples that we have here. It'll get done. But who's going to do it? One more reality. thought I'd bring a picture of old guys. 30 years from now, how many of these men will be actively leading at Open Door? Maybe the two boys in the upper left. They'd be in their 70s, though. That's okay. Who will it be? Because 30 years from now, I, I trust that this building, or maybe some future building, will be filled on a Sunday with worshipers, worshiping the same God, reading the same word, applying it to the culture at the time. But those boys are maybe in our nursery this morning, in kids' life on Wednesday night, or in high school youth group, or there's some 20-something, 30-something young adults, or some who haven't even come to faith in Christ yet, or some from another state, and, and God's going to put this whole picture together. O oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. And God will be faithful. God's work will go on in God's power. And all God's people said, let's, sing to, let's pray together and we'll sing together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you always have a plan for our future and uh, you have a plan to bless us. <clears throat> you have a plan to use us. And uh, you are not afraid of this culture. You are completely unintimidated by anything or anyone. And on the other hand, you are pleased to, to bless and use the, the anyones that you place here and there in strategic homes and, and churches, schools and workplaces and neighborhoods. And I pray we would be that... Uh, salt and light that you call us to be in our neighborhoods, even in these coming weeks as we, as perhaps our neighbors will even hear more about us, that as a church family we would model what it means to be like Christ. We ask your blessing upon us, our families, our church, in Jesus' name, amen.